podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined by Mr. COVID himself, Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? Fuming, angry, ready to go. <laughs> Carl took yet another week's holidays and got himself a bit of COVID, so, you know, swings and roundabouts in life. This is all um, your fault. It happened <laughs> as soon as you moaned about it last week, so this is all your fault. I'm happy to take the blame for it. I don't have COVID, so I'm okay. Um, right. Today we were going to do a more in-depth thing. We had Nicole ask us a question to look at realistic targets for Liverpool for this summer, but we're going to do that next week as part of another pod. Andy Wales asked us one as well a few months back that we missed about the about building a Dortmund team based on what they have now to challenge Bayern for next year. We're going to do that next week as well. Today we've got some other questions we want to do and Carla's going to burden me with talking for the most part because, you know, COVID. But we'll jump straight into these questions, Carl. This one is from Steve P. And he says, for the international break, since Dave is rapidly approaching 45 minutes of lateness, and I would have passed it today because I was late, but I'm not being penalised because there was an earthquake. Um, what is the most exciting half of football you've ever seen? It doesn't need to be a whole match or the final result. What would be your best half that you've seen, Carol? So I think there was a, the qualifier there that we had to exclude the second half of Istanbul, which I think is fair enough. Yes. Um, I would have two in, in fairly recent memory, uh, one of which was the spanking we gave to Arsenal under Brendan Rodgers. Yes. Um, Martin Skirtle, Raheem Sterling et al., all got in on the act. We could have honestly been about six or seven up by half time in that game. That was just ludicrous. It was phenomenal. It was one of the first seasons that I had uh, working wise, actually covering Liverpool nearly every single game. And honestly, just to witness some of that attack and football, we know it was not so great at the other end, but it kind of made it more exciting anyway, didn't it? Because we had to attack so much and we had to score 17 goals a game just to make sure we got at least a point. So some of that play was sensational in that half, especially. We just absolutely wiped the floor with them that was that was pretty special and the other one for me would be the first half against man city in the champions league uh, where we scored three times and it was a real sort of blockbuster first half statement from us yeah I, the arsenal one would have been my number one answer as well I, we were so good that day like there's there's rare times where you see a team just looked so overwhelmed and so shell-shocked at what's being done to them. And that was one of those occasions. Like, Arsenal had no idea 
how to deal with Liverpool that day. And like Suarez put in one of the best performances you'll ever see without scoring. He nearly broke the goalpost. And we were just, we were incredible. Absolutely incredible that day. Another one for me, it was exciting for a different type of reason. But the second half against Chelsea last season at Stamford Bridge when Thiago came on, just because I'd watched this guy for so many years be so brilliant for Bayern, and to see him in a Liverpool shirt strutting around Stamford Bridge like he owned the place, that was really exciting. I, I do love the city shout as well. I, I think you've actually probably picked, from a pure excitement standpoint, I think you've picked the two best ones. But I, that watching Thiago for the first 45 minutes was was fairly special as well. Yeah, that was magic. You could see straight away that we had a, a different player that we'd had previously, and you could see quite quickly, I think, yeah, it was noticeable the people who hadn't maybe watched him um, regularly, let's say, over the previous few years, and then suddenly getting a look at what he's capable of and seeing them get excited. It was, it was a, a big positive to see as well there. Um, I think there have been definitely loads of other ones which have been equally absurd. I mean, you think back to the the 5-4 against Norwich, for example, that second half was just absolutely lunatic. And like quite a few games like that, which are very, very memorable, uh, mm. especially the way it was won, obviously. But I think overall performance and just how you look at it and think, this is like unreal, this is sensational stuff, I think those would be my two. The first 18 months or so under Klopp, when we were still trying to figure it out, we were still carrying one or two mediocre players and we couldn't sustain a level of brilliance for you know prolonged periods I mean we couldn't control games or see games out but we'd have these spectacular like 35 minute explosions against teams there's a few of them in Klopp's first 18 months that were a lot of fun um it's we've been very very fortunate even under Rodgers there was some great like there was a half against Swansea at Anfield, that was brilliant as well in that title run-in. Um, obviously, the first half away to Palace, the second half didn't end well, but the first half away to Palace was good. Uh, the second half against City at the end of that season as well with the Coutinho winner. There was just it was because of what was seen as being on that game. There was a lot of excitement around it as well. Um, Arsenal, uh, sorry, Arsenal, Everton, and Tottenham as well. Very, very good halves there. Yes, yes. The Sturridge just taking it upon himself to embarrass Everton was was a thing of real beauty. Um, right, next one. Oh, and a, a special mention for Stephen Gerrard: the second half hat trick against Napoli at Anfield. Oh yeah, yeah. After coming on, after coming off the bench, that was that was, that was pretty special as well. Um, right, Ali. With reports saying Liverpool are favourites to sign Chouameni, how so? Three-part question. Number one: How excited does this potential addition make you feel? So, what would what would you be your feelings on signing him? Um, the right thing to do. <laughs> I think that's uh, <laughs> easiest to sum up like that. Look, I, I think first of all, it is important to clarify that the reports which came out were a couple of days previous to. You know, when this has been put in, obviously by then it's made itself to the English media, but they actually originated in Spain. So why 
we have to you know take as an absolute definite this is correct what's happening that the spanish media reported on a french based player moving to an english club i will leave open to individual interpretation but basically this is what they do if real madrid and barcelona are not buying a player they will say some other big team ah because they need their clicks just as much as mm. all the uh, all the all the red tops and green tops need to in the uk and everywhere else as well so Let's uh, let's go a little bit easy on that. I don't think that Liverpool are the most in need team of Chouameni, and I'm not going to be surprised at the end of summer if that plays the biggest role in where he decides to go. Um, there are, I would say, at least four very very big sides who need Chouameni more than Liverpool need him right now. Like it would be a lot more detrimental to them to not get somebody of that quality in that that role than it would be for Liverpool at the moment. But I absolutely think that we should try and do so if uh, if he is one that we're looking at. Yeah, I agree. I mean, look, you're you are right. I mean, we don't we're not crying out for him, but he does he does start for us in our midfield along with Fabinho plus one of Naby or Thiago. Um, they would switch to the right and play the more attacking role, and he would play more the conservative Wijnaldum role. But he'd also give us the backup to Fabinho that we could use. But again, like. There are clubs like United who could absolutely use him in midfield. Arsenal could absolutely use him in midfield. Chelsea could use him in midfield. Uh, Barcelona, they've signed Frank Kessie, but he would be you know, a replacement for Busquets. Real don't need him. and, and the, I do wonder with the, the news coming from Spain, and I think it was Marca, was maybe because he'd been strongly linked with Real, and maybe Real aren't going to pursue that one because their focus is on Mbappe and Haaland and maybe Pogba. Um, maybe that's why it was put out. Who knows? But like you said, it's likely just clickbait. Um, it would second, be everything about Real Madrid if they bought Pogba over Chouameni. Oh yeah, it would. It would definitely. It would define what they're about. You know. Look, to be fair, if if um, since they got Camavinga last year, I don't think that. Chomeni is necessarily going to be highest on their needs list either. No, and I think he'll also look at Camavinga and see how infrequently he's been used and how annoyed Camavinga seems to be yeah. about some broken promises. And he'll probably look at that and think, I'm not really in the mood of that. Plus, they've got Casemiro, plays my nominal position, and he's not going anywhere anytime soon. So I might just sit this one out. Real will always be there for him if he does want that move. He's 21. He could go there in six years uh, if he wanted to, you know. Um, what does his addition mean to our midfield and for players like Fabinho, Thiago and Naby? Like I said, I think it would mean Thiago and Naby would play more on the right than on the left of the three. Uh, Fab, I, it just gives him a better backup. It means that he doesn't have to play as often. Um, it improves our midfield, I think, massively. I think the upgrade from Jordan Henderson to him is is huge. The ones I wonder about are maybe Curtis and Harvey, if, if it might mean one of them would go on loan for next season if we were to bring him in. While Henderson is still playing that bit more, maybe one of them goes on loan. And then the following season, as he's transitioned into more of the Milner sort of here and there kind of role, um, here and there playing, not here and there, you know, right back, left back, that type of thing. 
I wonder if you know maybe it makes sense just to loan them one of them for a year to bridge that that span, and then as Henderson moves back down f- further down the the depth chart, uh, then you bring them back into the mix. Yeah, I think a lot of that obviously might be dependent on what people at even cater do. I mean, with only one year left on his contract, it's already been spoken about. He he may be one of the ones who either opts to move on or we've considered moving on. We don't know what interest there is in him. Um, so I think a lot of it in terms of Jones and Elliot in particular is going to be down to what the not guaranteed starters do this summer because Milner may leave or he may sign a new deal. Oxlade-Chamberlain may leave because he doesn't really get that many chances anymore uh, and obviously cater with the contract situation as well. So I think more of what they do might impact on Jones and Elliot than if we bring in another player to be fair yeah that is that is very true that is very true I, I think Milner goes I, I the whole thing of him getting a new contract all stemmed from Klopp saying that he'd spoken to Milner he didn't ever mention there was a new offer and Romano just ran away with himself and claimed there was an offer on the table which clearly there was not um I I think Ox goes uh, watching him the way he came off against Forrest seemed to be having himself a little bit of a strop and he was seen to say I've not played in ages um, that made me feel like maybe the end is nigh for him and if, if those two leave then there's no reason to loan obviously Elliot or or um, Jones because you'd have just as an example, a starting midfield of Thiago, Fabinho, Chouameni, and then Naby, Henderson, and Jones as the, or or Harvey, Henderson, and Naby as the backup three, and Jones as sort of the seventh midfielder. It's just also, it'll also come down to, is Curtis Jones happy enough to sit for another season? and have another kind of stop-start year, or would he prefer to go and play more regularly? Because he might ask to go on loan. He might ask to go somewhere where he might get 30 starts in the league somewhere. You know, Harvey had that last year at Blackburn, and we saw the benefit it did him. It could do Curtis a similar level of benefit to go somewhere, start more regularly. So there'll be different factors to take into account. And obviously the Naby thing is interesting with a year left in his contract, he's had such a good year, there likely will be some strong interest in him, maybe even from Monaco, who've been linked to him in the past. So maybe there is a good offer out there for him, but I mean, based on how he's played this year, I'd be very, I'd be disappointed to see him leave because I think he really has settled into our role now in that him and Thiago kind of platoon that one position and it's one or the other. Um, it keeps both of them fresh and both of them have been brilliant. I think we've we've seen again this season that we do probably the, the, the number of games that we have to play, the competitions we want to win. We probably do need eight. Maybe you can get away with seven in that um, mm, group in midfield of three. central midfielders. Yeah. You, you could probably have seven if you either had a really, really good young player who wasn't quite there yet or let's say two or three of the current group where not as injury prone as they are. So let's say mm. if, you know, if Ox is one of the ones to go, for example, and somebody comes in who is a lot more resilient, then 
maybe that's one. Maybe uh, if Cater is the same, maybe that's one. You know, that's what overall you could possibly get away with it. But we've already seen we had all of them available for what two games, and yeah. all of a sudden it was back down to six, and then another game has been five, and up front similar story. So we don't really want to go below that. Otherwise, what we've done in the cups this year, for example, you won't get again. See, that's the thing, and I, I would always say, you know, if you're playing a back two, you should have five centre-backs. If you're playing a midfield three, you should probably have at least seven midfielders. In attack, you can sort of get away with six if you've got a midfielder, like, say, a Harvey that can be moved into the attack if need be. But, you know, you've, you've got to have strength in the midfield. You've got to have your numbers there, or, or it will cost you. Um, third part of the question, then. Will Haaland, if he signs for City, look pedestrian going against the likes of Chouameni, Fabinho, Ibu and Virgil? So in terms of physicality, doggedness, high-end quality defensive players, do you think is that the type of thing? Now, I, I, I don't think Haaland looks pedestrian against anybody, but I do think that's the type of core group that can deny him the space he wants to operate in and deal with his physical presence. Yeah, um, as I said to Guy before we actually start recording this, I, I very much doubt that Haaland even looks pedestrian when he's asleep. Um, the guy is an absolute force. He is unbelievable. There's a, been a couple of things in the Spanish media this week that Real Madrid are not happy with the uh, medical reports that they've had over this most recent injury, which obviously kept him out a little bit, but... Look, you, you don't get a goal a game in the Bundesliga over an extended period of time if you have not got lots and lots of different things in your attack and armory. Right? He's not just power. He's not just pace. He's not just a, a blistering left foot. He's not just really good movement. He's all of those things. And he can take on a player. And he doesn't mind shooting with his right or with his head. And he's good offset pieces. It, he's just relentless. He really, really is mm. relentless. The biggest thing to defend in him is obviously defending the actual ball coming in. It's the supply line. That's that's been the biggest thing. I think when when he has not impacted on matches has been basically when teams have stopped Dortmund playing, yeah, or denied them the space to play those uh, you know defense split and passes or quick transitions, anything like that. But even then, we've seen him like cover one penalty box to the other off defending a corner and be in the box when they score at the end of it a, a number of times. Basically, you cannot stop all players all the time if they're that good. No, exactly, and he's. He is strong in pretty much every area you'd want a number nine to be strong in. He, he's a very special player. He's very gifted physically, but his technical level can't be overlooked. He's a very, very good, talented player. He's not just a brute. You're right. The best way to stop Haaland is to stop the supply. And Chouameni with Fabinho would be massive in terms of stopping through balls. Virgil and Ibu will win most headers against most people. Robbo's as good as there is at blocking crosses. Trent is good in that area, could do it being a little bit better. But, you know, you often see Virgil screaming at him, stop the cross, stop the cross. And and that's what you try to do when you play against the Haaland. Stop the supply. Because he's not going to go and pick the ball up in midfield and beat three people by himself. Not against high-level opposition like we'd have. Someone will commit a foul if need be. So, you know, the best way to stop him is just to stop the ball getting to him. Um, right, Chris Colby uh, had an extension to the same question as Ali because I was wondering if you consider using Fab as the Matip or Gomez replacement 
and us only buying one centre back when those two depart in the summer? Uh, straight answer for me is no. I don't. I, I like Fab at centre back. I think he could be really good there. But unless he was moving there permanently, and we were buying another one in midfield. So, for example, if we bought Chuameni this summer, and then next summer, say Gomez and Mat uh, Gomez and Mat had left. I wouldn't be against moving Fab to centre-back permanently, bringing in a Jude Bellingham type and one centre-back. But if Fab has been asked to do both defensive midfield and centre-back, I want no part of that at all. Give me four dedicated centre-backs. If Fab is one of them, fine, but I need a replacement for him in midfield. Uh, what, what would your view on that be? Um, I, I think that's already been answered by Klopp. He, he said he should have stuck with... Um... Reese and Nat Phillips much earlier last year and stop breaking things basically in defence and in midfield. He wants specialists for the role and even players who are quite clearly not even top half Premier League calibre in their role is better than having someone mm. out of their role and letting someone else who is again not as good be in that role. So I, I think it's pretty clear he's the best defensive midfielder in the world. It's it's kind of a similar argument to people wanting to move Trent you know, out of right back. It's where he's yeah. already fantastic. Don't do it for the sake of it. I will say, though, when Fab played centre-back, he was brilliant. Yeah, astonishingly good. And I don't doubt for a minute that if you put Trent in midfield, like, I don't know, right of a diamond or something like that, it'd also be excellent. But yeah. it's about the system and how you use it, isn't it? And there's no Yeah, and, and who replaces them. So obviously... Yeah. Henderson steps in a defensive midfield. He's not nearly as good. So the midfield isn't nearly as good. The biggest problem came when Henderson went to centre-back. That's when everything fell to shit because he's got no positional sense. He can't read the game and just doesn't know what he's meant to be doing. It's not his fault. It's just not a centre-back. Fab, as a great defensive midfielder, can slot the centre-back quite easily. Most great centre, Most great holding midfielders can slot the centre-back We've seen Mascherano do it. Busquets has done it before. Um, it, it's just it's easier for them because they understand space. Yeah, uh, Henderson doesn't. To, yeah, I think it is very very important to note that Henderson became a defensive midfielder because we needed him to. Yes, we'd exactly. Years and years and years of absolute dross in that position, and that's why he had to become it for the team. And like Lucas, yeah, Lucas was the so. same. Lucas was the yeah. same player as Henderson, a box to box midfielder. I mean, More attack-minded than defence-minded. Yeah, Henderson had played right under Kenny. But, like, they were both that kind of energetic box-to-box midfielder. Yeah. Far more attack-minded than defensive-minded. But because they were high-energy players, and like you said, we had no other options, they got slotted in there, and then they just kind of stayed there. Not that they were good at the role, just that there wasn't anyone else to play it. And because of how we've been run over the years, not just under the current ownership but the previous ownership as well, managers were having to make do with what they had to work with and they couldn't just go and buy exactly the player they want until the player they want became available at a price that worked for them. But we we waited. I mean, Mascherano left in 2010 and we were eight years without anything resembling even a decent defensive midfielder at the club. So Lucas and Henderson were the ones that filled in there. Simple with as that, really. apo- With notable apologies to Kevin Stewart. Kev Stewart, and of course, and I can't believe you've missed this man, the great Christian Poulsen. Um, <clears throat> moving on. 
Wow. You said you had some players you wanted to discuss, so I will now give you the floor, and uh, mm. let's see what you've got for me. So we're, we're going to do, at some stage in the coming weeks, a bit of a, not an overhaul, because I don't think either of us think that Liverpool need an overhaul, but obviously one or two additions in key areas. Now, most of the time we would now expect that to be one or two really good additions, mm. but in the event that it's not, we may have to go for the more mean approach, let's call it, where you get maybe the, the second string or people who can be a bit versatile or people who, if they play well, great, but if they don't, you're probably not going to make any kind of a loss on them anyway. So I've got three players plus an additional one who doesn't quite fit that bill, but I want to ask you about him anyway. Okay. So for the defensive line first, Ridley Baku. Now, he's a player I've spoken about a few times before, and in terms of versatility, not sure we could do any better than him, to be honest. Mm. This is a guy who basically came through as a box-to-box midfielder, was repurposed to a right-back, a wing-back, has played wide left forward this season, and pretty much everywhere else you want. Ridley Baku makes a lot of sense for us. 23, so nowhere close to the, the finished product. Hugely versatile, which is something we are going to lose if Milner and, and Ox go, because they can play between them most positions. Not necessarily well, but they'll fill in and do a job. Baku can play right back. He could probably play left back if needed. He can play both wing back spots. Like you said, he came through as a midfielder. He's playing left side of the front three this year. He can play on the right side of the attack as well. And that's basically all the spots, like the non-spine positions, so not centre-back, holding midfielder, striker, which is basically what Milner and Ox can do for us. So he he would replace both of them in one player, give us a high-level backup for Trent. German international, so he's no scrub. He might not be... He might not have the highest ceiling, like... There's, I don't think there's a world in which Ridley Baku goes on to be one of the 20 best players on the planet. But he's certainly good enough to start for a top four team for an extended period as and when needed. He's good on the ball. He's lightning quick. He's aggressive, which I really like. He doesn't get in any way phased by the physical battle. I definitely wouldn't be against Ridley Baku. He's been well-schooled as well, came through the Mines Academy, was, I think he came through, the, went into the Mines Academy when Klopp was still there and then was there for the whole Thomas Tuchel era. So you know there's been good schooling going on. He's been at Wolfsburg now a couple of years and he's been impressive. He has, he's been impressive. He got six goals last year, four this season. And a lot of that comes from playing deeper where you might not expect him to get the goals. Defensively, he has some flaws, but his his pace and his burst, a little bit like Kyle Walker, he can, he can make a mistake and recover his own mistake because he's so quick. So Ridley Baku, I would definitely be in favour of, especially considering he's called Ridley after Kyle Heinz Riedler, who is, you know, a Liverpool legend. <laughs> Total icon. Um, I think the level of aggression and versatility both really, really appeal for him and transition players when he looks most dangerous mm. as well. 
Long contract may be one of the concerns there, though. Yeah, so he signed a five-year deal at the beginning of last season. So he'd have three years left. Yeah, I don't I know right. what they paid for him. I don't think they paid massive um, money for him. No, they paid like, quite a low fee for him. Six, seven million euros yeah. or something like that, including add-ons. So I, I think it would be a reasonably doable deal. If, I think um, so. I think you'd was... probably get him in around 20, maybe? Yeah, possibly. Including some add-ons? Obviously, being a breakthrough into the Germany squad is a big thing for him as well. So if he thinks a move, even though if he might not be starting all the time, is a better thing for him, or if he mm. be shifted around the pitch and not always at right-back would be worse for him in that respect. True, but it does look like one of the things that Flick likes about him is his versatility and his willingness to just play you know, where I need you. I need you here, no problem, I'll go play there. That yes. does seem to appeal to him. For him. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Very much so. So yeah, I, I would definitely be able to get on board with Ridley Baku as a, as a summer signing, for sure. Right, second one is uh, a little further forward. This was a centre-back repurposed this year as a holding midfielder, basically, and I think he's done pretty well there. He's... I would liken him to Declan Rice in terms of playing style in that he's not mega aggressive, quite technical. He's a little bit languid, not necessarily the speediest, and obviously he can play both those two roles as well. And that's Hugo Guillemon from Valencia. So the Rice comparison is a good one. He has that look about him where he doesn't always look like he's in full control of his arms and his legs. But yet there's a grace to his game that that does work. He's definitely been much more impressive as a central defender, a central midfielder than he was as a centre-back, in my view. And I wonder if that's because he's a little bit on the short side as a centre-back. He's about six foot, six foot one. And he's not exactly, you know, a bit like a tank. But... Very comfortable on the ball. Reads the game really, really well. Good sense of position. Knows he's not the most gifted on the ball. Knows he's got better players around him. And that's what I really like. Sometimes when I watch Declan Rice, I I think he thinks he's better than he is. And he does things he's just not really capable of doing. Whereas with Guillemot, he seems very aware of what his limitations are. So he's happy to play that more sort of supporting role, to be a recycler, to not necessarily take too much out of the game, not slow things down. One thing I always look for in a pivot is, are they a ball stopper? Like, when the ball goes to them, is it continually moving? Or are they putting their foot on it and having a look and and assessing an option? Because if they're doing the latter, it means they don't know what's around them. He seems to know what his options are and what's around him. I don't, again, I, I don't know what the price would be. He's just been capped by Spain, which is obviously a big thing for him as well. At the right price, he'd be a great option. He's too small to be a Klopp centre-back, but as a fifth centre-back, he'd be perfect. And as a backup to Fab, he's one of the better options around. Like, stylistically, that, what, what, the lighthouse, isn't that what um, yep, yep. Pep and Lindos refers to it as? That's the type of role that would suit him. Head always on a swivel, knows where everything is, knows what's going on. 
does a lot of players thinking for them. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd definitely be in favour of him. Obviously, price is is an issue because you know he's just been capped. But Valencia aren't exactly a smart club, so they might they might be willing to sell him for below what he's actually worth. I I like I, it's actually hard to put a price on him because he's only had the one season in midfield as a centre back. I would have said no more than. 10, 12 million a year ago. Now it's probably double that. Yeah, I agree. I, I think he's, he's, he's done very well as a firefighter for them, I think. Um, not really venturing forward too much unless they're you know in trouble in the, in the match result. But defensively breaking up play, really being aware as to where he needs to be to help the team most in what is still a little bit ragged at times and a little bit of a, a young side, obviously with some of the, the wider and attacking players around him. I think he's done really well. And again, mm. considering first season in that role, I, I don't think that Guillermoon is of a technical level to get to a Fabinho level, the very, very highest level or anything like no. that. Which, But I think he's aware of that though. <laughs> yeah. Like I think he, he knows that he doesn't have that in his game. So he doesn't try to do anything that he's not comfortable doing. He just keeps it nice and simple and keeps the ball moving Win it back, give it to someone who can play. That's sort of what he his mantra is. Yeah, he can, he can be quite adventurous with his, his longer range pass, and I will say he's quite good at the switching of play from deep and all the rest of it, but it isn't about you know carrying the ball or trying to take people on or being too too clever about things. It's just moving it on pretty quickly. I think that's the, the most impressive thing about it. Um, the, the one... Not a concern as such, but just to argue the other side of the, the coin as well. If he's not going to be a first-teamer at all, mm. would you buy him at all? Bearing in mind people like Tyler Morton or whoever else. Yeah, I think his ceiling is higher than Tyler Morton. Yeah, I think he's already better quite a bit. Oh, he's, oh, he's already better, but he is a couple of years older. But I think yeah, yeah. like what he can become is definitely what I would see has been quite a bit higher than Tyler. I also don't think Tyler's a six long term i think he probably works into being more of an eight um and i I just don't think tyler will make it at liverpool not nothing against the lad i just think there might be quite a low ceiling there but um it would depend on the price it would depend like i wouldn't spend 30 35 million on him but i'd spend 20 on him because i know that if i can get two to three good years out of him develop him i might then sell him for 30 or 35 and then I go back and I do the same thing. Like I go and find another one like him. Because that's what I'd be looking to do in certain positions. Ridley Baku is another one. You're not buying Ridley Baku with the intention that he retires at Liverpool. You're buying him to get two to three really good years out of him, develop him, and then sell him on at a profit. And then reinvest some of that money back into the next player to be Trent's backup. Because Trent is going to be the right back for this club for another decade. And you're probably going to need along that line to find three, maybe even four quality backups for him. So I'd be looking at two to three year swings with each one of these players in certain positions where we have an established world-class player and no backup. You remember when we had Torres and the excuse was always made of, it's very hard to buy, and, and Spurs the same with Kane. It's very hard to buy a backup for them 
because nobody who's good enough wants to join and be the backup. Yeah. Well, that's bullshit because what you should be doing is looking to buy someone in that 20 to 23 age range who has the potential, maybe not to be as good as them, but to be 80, 90% of them, get them into your system, get them developing, give them cup games, give them league games, off the bench, European games, whatever it is, and you develop them over two to three years with the intention of selling them on and then repeating the trick. That's how you should be going about or how we should be going about seeking backups in certain positions where like, a guy like Trent is not going to move for years. Fab's going to be there for years. And if we buy Chouameni, he'll obviously play as an eight. And then the idea would be he'd become the long-term six. But with the way Fab plays, because he's not reliant on speed, he's reliant on speed of mind rather than speed of foot, he could play there for the five years. Yeah. You know, He's got the intelligence and the quality to do it. So in that time, you might have to buy uh, Guillemot, sell him in two, three years, and buy another one to come in and be the backup for Fab. You know that it's just it's just that way. When you've got players of a certain caliber, you can't buy someone to come in and be competition. So you buy someone that's there for another purpose. It's like buy you know it's like the same reason you have an academy. Some players are developed to play. Some players are just developed to be sold. You can do the same thing with backup players in your first team. So for twenty million, yeah, I'd buy Guillemot, um if we weren't buying Chuameni. But for anything for like thirty of that, no, I wouldn't because I think that's probably where the ceiling on his price is going to go. Fair enough. And into the attacking line, then I had a long list of these, so I've had to whittle them down. And in the end, I've got two, and I can't really split them. So these are both players who are versatile and don't play at the very biggest of clubs, but they're probably at teams who should be second or third in their respective leagues. But they're not actually starters for them all the time this season. Okay. Uh, so a couple of these have been injuries. A couple of them is just you know still adapting and rotation, all the rest of it. So first off is Paulinho at Bayer Leverkusen. Mm. And second is Alexander Golovin at Monaco. Uh, Golovin obviously was an attacking midfielder and a 10, and it's probably how people remember him from uh, with, with Russia and the rest of it. But this year for Monaco has mostly been used out wide, um, often from, from the left especially, I think, cut, cutting in and doing all his usual bits, playmaking and creating all the rest of it, but from a wider position. Whereas Paulinho is much more of a forward, but again, he's shifted right and left just because that's where space is in the team. Decent on the on the counter-attack, good transition play. Also a very, very aggressive in terms of making tackles and challenges in the final third. So Saro Palinho, when when they signed him from Vasco, and it's it's four years ago now since they brought him in, I was really excited by what I'd seen of him for the Brazilian under-17 team. He just looked like a real force of nature. He looked like a Brazilian Carlos Tevez. He had that dogged, win-at-all-costs sort of drive to him. He could bundle his way through defenders and, and had the physicality to do it. But he also had some real Brazilian flair about his game. And for whatever reason, he's never really gotten a consistent run at Bayer Leverkusen. You mentioned he's had some injuries. I think he missed 
Did he miss nearly all the last season with an injury? And it's really hampered his development, especially in front of goal. Like he's only got six goals in 65 games for Leverkusen. But a part of that is he's a very selfless player. He doesn't look for the glory for himself. He'll often pass up good shooting opportunities to give someone in a better position a better opportunity. I like his versatility. Can play through the middle, can play in both wide positions. At 21, I do think you could probably repurpose him into a really attack-minded attacking midfielder if you wanted to. I do worry a little bit that he's stagnated a bit or that he's missed he's missed the chance to take a good leap forward in his development. I'm not sure he's much better now than he was at 18. He's shown flashes this season under Gerardo Sioni that you know the, the talent is still there, the explosion is still there. There's a lot of competition for places with, with Schick and Wurz and Diaby and um, the other, Adley they signed as well. So he's been a bit unfortunate in that regard. But I think I'd like to see more from him. I'd, I'd actually love to see Leverkusen loan him out somewhere where he'd play a lot more. And I'd like to see what we could get if he did play a full season in a consistent position in a decent team rather than the stop-start nature of his Leverkusen career and been in and out of the team and getting, you know, five minutes here, 15 there, then you're starting and then you're back on the bench. I'd like to see somewhere where he has a more consistent role. Golovin I could definitely get on board with. I loved him at the 2018 World Cup. I thought he was absolutely tremendous. I thought he was one of the best players at the World Cup. And I thought he was made for Klopp as a box-to-box, attack-minded midfielder who could run for absolute days. I mean, some of the distance-covered numbers he was putting up at that World Cup were just ridiculous. It was almost like someone was playing a game of PlayStation and controlling him and just had him running at full speed, non-stop for the whole game. It was ludicrous. And he was able to do it game after game after game and was a big part in why... The uh, the Russians did okay in that World Cup. Um, I like him more as a midfielder than an attacking player, so I would take him as a midfielder. Like, if Ox left, I'd take Golovin as the replacement for Ox. He hasn't become the player that maybe he was expected to be, but nobody who really joined Monaco around that time has. You know, they brought in... Um, Yuri Thielemans around the same time, he didn't do all that well and they loaned him and then sold him. They brought in Benjamin Henricks around that time. He hasn't done well. They've loaned him and since sold him. So I do think it's more more a Monaco thing than necessarily a, a Golovin thing. I think they just had a couple of really shaky years there off the back of that brilliant team that they had that won the league. I think things started to go quite badly, which under Jardim, and then the Henri spell was a disaster. Jardim comes back. It's toxic. It doesn't go well. You keep him until the following Christmas. Then you bring in Robert Moreno, who's got no business managing any kind of top club. And then you bring in Nico Kovac. And it's a lot of turnover. It's a lot of 
it's a lot of flux for players to deal with, especially one like, not to stereotype, but Russian players have a tendency not to do all that well outside of Russia. You can look back over the last 35 years and probably name the Russian players who excelled outside of Russia on your fingers without using your thumbs, like Kinchelskis, Viktor Anopka, Vladimir, uh, no, Valery Karpin. Mostovoy. Mostovoy. Alexei Schmertens. Jasnik. Yeah. And then I'm struggling, you know? Like, look, like Arshavin came out of Russia as a guy who looked ready to become a star. And he struggled at Arsenal. He had a couple of great games, obviously the one at Anfield. But for the most part, he struggled. And whether it's a culture thing or a language thing or a personality thing, I don't know. But there does seem to be something with Russian players. They just don't always do all that well when they leave. But I wonder if the culture we have at Liverpool, with the manager we have, with how close and integrated the squad is, if maybe that's something that could benefit a player like him, who maybe just needs a hug every now and then. Because at Monaco, I get the feeling that you've got... There's two groups of players at Monaco. I've always looked at Monaco this this way. There's two groups of players at Monaco. There's young players who go there to be developed and to build their name and get a move to somewhere else. And there's older players who go there for the paycheck because it's an incredible place to live. The sun shines all year round. You live in Monte Carlo. You might buy a yacht. It's it's the flashiest place in Europe or, or certainly one of them. You know, you're close to Saint-Tropez. It's a lot of lifestyle thing. So I, I, Golovin at 25 now is kind of, in between those two groups, he's he he went there, I think, with the intention of two years, build my name, get a bigger move. That didn't happen. He's still there. He's too young yet to be considered like one of the retirees that goes there just for the paycheck and the lifestyle. But I wonder if like Monaco has always to me seemed like that's kind of the purpose of that club for those two groups of players. Every so often they strike gold and you get an Henri and a Trezeguet and a Lillian Turam through in a couple of years. Or you get Mbappe and you manage to find Thomas Lamar and Fabinho and who else was there? Uh, the, the fella at City who we won't name, Sidibe, you know, and, but you still had a couple of pensioners there, the couple of guys that were there for the money. You had Falcao, and Moutinho, they were there for the money and the lifestyle. But because of that team, um, Bakayoko's the other one I was trying to think of. Like Those were the young players. You had a couple of older players. You had Click at the back, who was sort of in between. But that was always their culture, was you, you're here either to retire or you're here as a stepping stone. Whereas at a club like Liverpool, which is a destination club now, and the players are all long-term committed to a shared idea. I wonder if that could help him. And I wonder if we're the type of club that could pick him up 
and get him back on track to the player that he he should be. Not that he not that he could have been, but that he should have been, because he did have such a high ceiling when he was at CSK in Moscow. He did look like the type of player that was really going to have a cracking career. He got seven goals in that last season, bit of a breakout year for him. But it's just never really fully clicked from at Monaco. I, I would buy him. I would. I'd take a gamble on him. If Ox goes, he's the type of midfielder I'd be looking at. Someone to bring in. If it doesn't work, grand. You're not going to lose your money. If you pay $15 million for him this summer and it doesn't work, you'll get 12 to $15 million off Zenit St. Petersburg or Spartak Moscow or Krosnodar in 12 months. But if it does work out, all of a sudden you've got a really good player on your hands. I think that's another one, not necessarily just him, but similar type of midfielders, which would be a knock-on effect of if those people who may or may not leave all leave this summer. You know, if they all mm. want to, it might be the case that we we're kind of forced into the market to find someone like that who could be a really, really good addition, but we wouldn't necessarily have gone for them unless... Milner and Ox and Naby all left at the same time sort of thing. I'm sure we'll yeah. obviously already have those in mind, not not we'll just have to suddenly decide on who to get, but they wouldn't have necessarily gone for them otherwise. Yeah, yeah, I 100% agree with that. I do 100% agree with that. Uh, have you got any more? I have one. Okay, give me one more. Right, it's someone we've spoken about quite a few times, and I want to see basically if your opinion has changed in the last two to three months which is when he has returned to prominence because he's come to the end of his contract because there was a big thing about him leaving in January and because he has returned to form in probably the best way since he joined Barcelona and that's Osman Dembele. (laughs) One month seven assists, one goal at least a couple of man of the match performances for Barca and still no end deal in sight as to where he's going to end up in the summer. Arguably the most informed wide player in Europe at the minute and has been since January. It, it's not just, you know, a couple of weeks. It's it's a couple of months now at this point. This is the player we have been crying out for since he went there. Like, this is the player that we saw at Rennes and then at Dortmund and were so excited about. Like, this is going to be the best winger in the world. This guy is unbelievable. He can do absolutely everything, and he can do it on either foot. And then he went to Barca, and it was just one disappointment after another. It was immaturity. It was injuries. It was inconsistencies. It was more immaturity. It was PlayStation. It was Xbox. It's very little about what he was doing on the pitch. It's not all on him, because obviously there's been quite a chaotic situation at Barca. But for a couple of years there, he had Ernesto Valverde as manager, who you know is kind of the epitome of buy the book, block everything out, just get on with it. He's on a free. Now, it's not a free. Free is the wrong term. He's on a Bosman. He's probably looking for insane money. But it would be worth considering. Now, here's the thing. I've only just seen this. And I do wonder if this is in part why he seems to have matured massively over the last 
couple of months. He got married in December. And maybe that's all he needed. Maybe he just needed to get married and not be distracted by everything and just settle himself down and become a grown-up, which at 24 years of age, he'll be 25 in May. It's about time. But maybe that's all it is. Maybe he just needed a bit of stability in his life because, you know, he was at Wren in the first team only for one year. He'd been at a couple of different academies. He was at Dortmund just for the year, and then obviously Barcelona came in, and he, he's kind of gone from, you know, playing in front of eighty and 20,000 to playing in front of 100,000 within the space of two years. And even at Dortmund, obviously, they're getting 75, 80,000, whatever it is. So I wonder if it was too much too soon, too many distractions, too much money at a young age, and, and not mature enough to cope with it, and then obviously gets married, and maybe the wife has had... At a very until four in the morning. Maybe his PlayStation broke. Hopefully, maybe she fucked it out the window and thought, "Listen, yeah. son, and you need a- to get a big con- <laughs> contract." Now- of PS fives, he's not been able to get a new one yet. The only concern, I, I would, I would, I, I would take the gamble on him if he, if he's showing this level of form. This player is absolutely worth gambling on. The only concern I have, it's rare you see it in football because in football, the Bosman is is rare enough. And you rarely see a 24-year-old become a free agent. But in, in the NBA, you, you frequently see players who are absolute dog shit for like two years, all of a sudden just have this unbelievable season get a big old contract, and then go back to an absolute dog shit. Trevor Ariza, if you hear this, I'm talking about you. Like, they just coast and coast and coast while the money's secure. And then when they need to secure the next bag, all of a sudden they're all in, committed to everything and playing out of their skin. That would be my only concern with him. Just the, uh, the phenomenon of... of- being on loan with a view to buy. Yes. Yes. Get a fella in, loan with an option, really wants to move, wants that big contract, goes there, plays out of his skin, sign him, dog shit. It happens. It just happens. And then the club is wondering, like, well, what happened? Like, like, he hasn't been dog shit, but like, Newcastle, Joe Willock went there on loan last year, realised there's a real chance for me to have a go at this. Played out of his skin. They spend 20 odd million on him. He gets a big, hefty contract. And he's been fairly average this year and doesn't look like he's. Not that he's not putting in the effort, but he doesn't look like he cares as much. Jesse Lingard last year as well. He went on West Ham thinking, you know, this is my chance to rescue my career here. Plays out of his skin. Goes back to United, doesn't even be. He's not even arsed this year. He's happy enough on the bench. Didn't even push to leave in January. So I would have a bit of a worry, but when he's playing the way he's playing, yeah, I think you'd have to. I think you'd have to take the gamble. A contract is obviously important. So how much does he actually want? But 
it could well turn out to be genius. Someone's going to get him, and there's only there's only two ways signing him goes. Though it's either a massive success or a complete disaster. There will be no middle ground with Usman Dembele ever, because never in his life has he had a six out of ten. He's either nine out of ten or three out of ten. He doesn't have any in between gears. You just hope you get more nines and threes. Would you would you risk the instability for that? Would he be would would he be an unstabilizing factor at a club like ours though? I don't know. I mean, if he we've seen him come on for Barcelona, right? And he's ambled about the pitch and he's not really done what he was asked to do from a tactical perspective and Kerman or whoever else beforehand has been absolutely raging with him. How, how does that translate into a squad which is as tactically diligent as this one is with people like Henderson and people like Virgil and people like James Milner screaming at you for just misplacing a pass. But see, they didn't do that at Barcelona. No, that's what I mean. So would he fit in this? That was, I'm Uh, not talking about him being a destabilizing thing. I think he needs that entire group rhythm. I think he needs players screaming at him. I think he needs someone who's on top of Malden. When you picture Thomas Tuchel in, in your head, one of the first images that comes to mind is him stood on the sideline screaming at Timo Werner. And Thomas Tuchel got the very best out of Usman Dembele. And I think Klopp would as well. Like Dembele, what we forget because we're a bit older is Dembele's a young guy. He's from the, the football Twitter generation. He's likely on Twitter every day scrolling through, having a look to see what's been said. He's seeing people say, Kuman's not going to be around. Why is he still here? This guy's useless. Get rid of Kuman. Blah, 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 blah. And he's probably thinking, yeah, why is Kuman still here? I'm not doing what he tells me. I'm going to do what I want. Valverde was never going to be a long-term fit at Barca because the style of play and the personality didn't really fit with what Barcelona want to portray themselves as. But Xavi... I mean, Xavi does. And it, it could well be that Usman turns around now and goes, right, I want to play for this guy. I'm going to stay. But Xavi has been on his case nonstop. And with the culture that there is at Liverpool, with the likes of Virgil and Milner and Henderson and Salah and Thiago and even Trent and Robbo willing to hold others accountable, plus a manager who's bellows can be heard by the players not doing their job at Everton, let alone the players not doing the job at Liverpool. I do think that kind of hardline taskmaster master approach is maybe what he needs. Maybe that's all he needs is just someone to keep him in line, someone to kick him up the arse 14 times a week because that's what he needs. Maybe if he's given too much freedom, we see what we've seen for the previous four and a half years or three and a half years, however long he's been there, four and a half years. Um, maybe he just needs more discipline in his life. And and he'll get that at Liverpool. I wouldn't... If, if we signed him, I would trust that we'd done all our due diligence. And I would trust that he would be a success. If United signed him, I'd immediately mark down massive, massive flop incoming. Because we've seen it too many times and no one there is going to tell them what to do. Fair enough. 
Right, will we leave it at that for today? Yep, I think that's good. I reckon he'll end up staying at Barca. <laughs> yeah, I kind of feel like it is starting to sway that way. That he might end up just staying at Barca, maybe on a reduced deal for a shorter term, maybe like a one or two year deal that's on reduced terms. And then if he does continues to do well and their finances bounce back, maybe then he gets a big deal. But the way he's playing at the minute, that is some sensational football. Considering if we go back to January, the president came out and said, that's him done. He's not playing anymore. He's not going to sign a new contract. He can leave immediately. And they were trying to usher him out the door in January, and he wouldn't go. But the form he's in at the minute, yeah, they, they'll be back with a new contract offer, no question. Right, anything you want to touch on before we go? Nope, that is all for me today. Cool, right. You go and deal with your COVID. Hopefully you are back feeling better Monday or Tuesday of next week, and we will be back with another episode where we will do the Andy Wales question of attempting to build a Borussia Dortmund team that could win the Bundesliga title next season. Uh, for myself, Carl, and Mr. Guy Drinkle, thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.